Today, we're going to learn all about new phenotyping tools being used in the field. Some are like having a small combine in your pocket. Hey, I'm your host, Matt Breckwald, and you're listening to Episode 7 of the Corn Revolution Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Neil Haussmann, field sensing lead, to learn about the innovative phenotyping tools currently being used in the field, things like smartphone image analysis and drone imaging. We'll also find out about Neil's role in the development of Optimum Aquamax hybrids. So let's get started. Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Well, if you would, uh, give us your your title, your full name, your title, and, and what you do here at Pioneer. So I'm Neil Hausman. Um, I work in R&D in research and development in uh, my official title is the field sensing lead. So I oversee a lot of our measurement systems that we make in the field as part of our product development cycle, but also developing solutions for, for farmers. Okay. Now, what brought you to, to work here at Pioneer? I'm originally from Los Angeles, California. I have no background in farming. So I'm a, I was a uh, relatively strange hire for Pioneer. I've been here for 15 years. So um, definitely a pioneer, and the company has changed hugely since I started. Mm-hmm. But back when I started, especially it's a lot, especially in the in the R and D area uh, in breeding, lots of people with ag- agronomy backgrounds, breeding backgrounds, who went to similar similar schools, um, which makes sense. A lot of you know breeding focused backgrounds, and my background was totally different. And so when I came in, it was both an opportunity and a challenge, I think, for me and the company um, to kind of. Uh, it was kind of a diversity okay. play. So I, was, I went to the U- University of California at Berkeley, and I, uh, my background is in um, actually more in native plants, so looking at how native plants deal with drought. And so the topic was right. Mm-hmm. That, uh, we, you know, it was when we were starting our drought breeding efforts and our drought uh, transgene evaluation efforts, uh, out, and we had a station out in California. And um, my wife was still in graduate school, and so I was uh, – looking for jobs in the area. And I can tell you, honestly, I didn't know that there was a seed sector. And I didn't know that anyone would hire me in that seed sector. So I tell people that I got the only job I was trained for. So, um, but it was definitely uh, uh, very lucky uh, for me and, ho- and hopefully for the company. So when you, first, when you were first hired, what were you hired to do? So I was hired into what was called a senior research associate position. Really, I was hired to cut up plants and Haul them out of the field. Okay. Um, so we were building a drought, a drought breeding effort, um, and um, yeah, a part of that is understanding how plants respond to the environment. What is drought? Uh, drought, you know, very different depending on soil conditions, weather conditions, and the germplasm. And so you had to measure a lot of things, and you had to make a, understand how different measurements, different characteristics of the plants interact to form yield under drought conditions. And so we, were, had, a, we had a, um, a crop modeling uh, effort to try to understand how do these different traits interact and build yield. And that involved, in the end, a lot of cutting up plants. So we had to understand, for example, how much leaf area was grown by the plant in order to intercept light, in order to then um, turn that into sugars to, to build the ear. Uh, and we need to understand different under different environmental conditions and for different genetics, how that happened differently. Um, and so it, it was funny. The good, it was, for, for me, it was fantastic because I started out doing a lot of the field work. 
So even though I had a PhD and a lot of lot training, I started out just every every measurement that could be made, I made. Went out and did ear height, plant counts, plant height, a lot. And so I started out my career in the field, uh, making a lot of field visits, um, but doing a lot of stuff with drought specifically in California. Well, now, what what does your day to day work look like now at Pioneer? Um, now, I as kind of as I said, as a field sensing lead, really trying to oversee uh, a lot of our field measurement systems. So, as I said, I started out my career making tons of these manual measurements, mm-hmm. and I kind of joke in the company that I have a vendetta against these one to nine scores. So, a lot of what we've done, and actually since the twenties. You go out, you take a look at a plot, and we're trying to right, separate different genetic varieties to, to, to select the best for breeding. And you go and you say, okay, I'm looking for uh, how green is this plot, and we'll see how fast is it dying. Oh, this one's a five, this one's a three, this one's a two. We have calibrated scales to help you to make those measurements, but as you can imagine, it's very subjective. So you're going out there, and if you're hot and tired and hungry and sure. thinking about something else— you're going to maybe be a little bit more harsh against those measurements than if you're feeling happy and just had your coffee. And so um, with that, you know, the quality of our breeding and product advancement comes from the quality of the data we collect in the field. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that when you're taking scores just by eye, even as an expert, it's really hard to stay consistent. And of course, across experts, across time, um, it's almost impossible to get really high quality data. So I've spent a good chunk of my career then trying to figure out better ways to measure plants to get more consistent scores and therefore make better decisions and hopefully end up with better products. Okay. Well, so here we are today, uh, 2019, on the, uh, the beginning, uh, the, the launch of the corn revolution. So what, what are those advances in technology that are allowing you to remove some of that subject, subjectivity today? One of the major focus areas I've, I've had over the, my career is in image analysis. So I tell you, this, my story is that I started doing image analysis as part of my, uh, my doctorate, my grad, stu- my grad studies. And I had, I think, something like 3,000 plants I had to measure, and I wanted to measure how much leaf area they had. So Because, of course, how much leaf area a plant has determines how much water it uses. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the, the stomata or pores underneath the bottom of the leaves. And I had no way to do it, and I had no one to help me, and I had no money as a classic grad student project. And so I said, well, I have a camera, and strangely enough, my advisor has this software to analyze pictures. And so I took pictures just in the greenhouse and took you know, whatever, 3,000 pictures over these plot, pots and then tried out this, this uh, software to try to see if I could t- mostly measure the amount of leaf area there was in each pot as my measurement. Because, of course, the alternative was cutting up the leaves and scanning them, um, and that was going to take a lot more time. So mm-hmm. I kind of stumbled into image analysis as a, as a phenotyping or measurement method uh, in grad school. And then, strangely enough, when I came to Pioneer, I found that we had a license to the same software, and I was told I had to count the number of kernels on ears of corn for, I don't know, 10,000 years. And the traditional way of doing that was taking the ear, you put it through a sheller, and then you put it through a counter. And so every ear literally spins, kernels spinning around, count, slowly counting each one. And I thought, okay, yeah, my boss told me to do that, so I'll do it. But what if I took a picture of each ear beforehand? And so we built a technology around taking, you mostly using an 
uh, image of uh, one side of a ear of corn, mm -hmm. counting kernels, um, looking at kind of uh, how much nosing back or tip kernel abortion there is, how well it was filled out, how big the kernels were, as once again ways to better understand yield and how yield is built, yield, uh, drought tolerance, uh, and um, to do it in a way that's one easier, faster, cheaper, but also more reliable as a measurement. Um, and so started that mostly as a winter project because I didn't have anything else to do. And um, we're still working in that. Luckily, we have we're able to get some patents in the area and, and uh, use that then for, um, once again, understanding yield and yield components uh, since then. So you can take a picture of an ear of corn and then with the technology that you've developed and the software that you have or that did you develop the software or uh we developed the algorithms to okay. mostly find the kernels okay and so you can extrapolate how many kernels of corn yep. there are so with very very high accuracy we're able to say i mean it's, i think within three to four percent really? exactly the number of kernels on the ear of corn and then recently we've moved that onto like uh mobile phones so for an iphone now you can Go out in the field, peel back, peel back the husks of an ear, take a picture, and it will, with very high accuracy, give you a count of the kernels. Very and do that under any lighting conditions, anywhere in the world. Um, and so that's a, it's for me, it's been very exciting over the past 15 years to go from literally being out in the back of a warehouse taking pictures uh, as, as uh, on a whim, pretty much, mm -hmm. to now having a product that's in our agronomist's hands, being able to help them understand and predict the yield in a field without having to, you know, we can do that well before harvest. So it then helps with logistics and planning. So what if the, the kernel size is small? Is it still able to be that accurate? Like, yeah, the, it's pretty, we, we, it doesn't really depend on kernel size. It, okay. And it doesn't depend too much even on moisture. So as long as you have really well, pretty well-established kernels, the algorithms now are sensitive enough to be able to count those with really high accuracy. So once again, it's like it's just like having a small combine in your pocket. You can walk out, take a picture of a kernel, an ear of corn, get an idea of the number of kernels, and then with other technologies, and we can get a count of the plants, number of ears per plant. You start doing some of the mm -hmm. kind of standard uh, agronomic calculations to estimate yield, and you can do that really early. So you okay. can start getting an idea of. Um, what you might want to do to the field, what you might want to do from a logistical standpoint, because you either have, you know, you may have, you know, worse, worse yield than you might have thought or better yield, depending. Well, I, so you started off uh, cutting up leaves and, and spending your time getting sunburn out in fields and, and doing all of that. So are you removed from that now or do you still get to get back out and have that hands-on with farmers and, and agronomists and sales staff out in the field? So most of our work right now, and this is a segue into the other piece, the other aspect of image analysis that we're really focused on is drone imaging. Okay. So um, really over the past six, five to six years have built up, you know, as, as the drone industry itself has been growing, right? So we started out talking to defense contractors who were just thinking about getting into the kind of civilian drone space mm -hmm. back in 2011, 12. Um, when drones weren't on anyone's mind. Um, <clears throat> and starting to think of drones in, you know, understand how drones could help us with our, with our imaging uh, and our measurement systems. Because one of the great things about 
so we refer to them as unmanned aerial systems. Mm -hmm. So if I use UAS, uh, that's what it refers to. Um, we use U UAS. Um, the great thing about them is, especially now, they're relatively cheap. They are, since they have a cold consumer market, um, they are well-built and well-tested uh, because hundreds of thousands of people are using them. Um, now, and, uh, and they're portable, and so pretty much anyone can have them, right? As opposed to, uh, and we did spend some time looking at manned aircraft, uh, and that's just, right, it's very expensive to buy a plane, get a full pilot's license, get a very expensive camera on that. And it's just not scalable the way breeding and, and farming worked for us. Um, and so we, because we have thousands of plots all over the place, we're not always sure exactly when we need to make the measurement. It depends on kind of how the crop is growing. And so drones have been kind of fit that perfect niche for us for scalability. So we're almost at the point where every research station that we have and um, has access now to drone technology do imaging as a as kind of a standard way that we do field testing and field phenotyping. And uh, I can say I'm, I'm, I'm winning on my battle against the one to nine scores. <laughs> so lots of those scores where we would go out and take a disease score or standability, uh, lodging scores or um, stay green scores, all these measurements that it's very hard to make a measurement by eye. And so we would just kind of bin them into different good, bad, and okay. Mm -hmm. um, we're now able to take images, process those images through a pipeline, um, an analytical pipeline, and then we come out with uh, really a very uh, objective percentage of that plot that is that is green or um, uh, the no, you know the the area of the leaf area of that plot, just like I did in my dissertation. Mm -hmm. um, those are now kind of standard measurements that we make, and so um, it's kind of helped helped to build up within our breeding breeding pipeline that the use of drones as a standard phenotyping tool uh, so that we can get to, um, yeah, mostly make m better measurements, mm -hmm. better decisions, and then hopefully better products. So we started with, uh, in R&D and then moved on to starting training our agronomists. So once again, the same philosophy as the pictures of ears on the phone. Mm -hmm. um, we view drones and drone analytics as a really good enabler to enable the discussion with agronomists, with the farmer, rep with the farmer, agronomist with the rep, R&D and the commercial seed. It's, we can make those measurements, take those pictures, and then rather than, you know, rather than having to have the discussion in the field, we can have kind of a record. We can sit down and say, hey, look at this, look at this plot. It looks like I have the 10 pictures from this one hybrid that we were testing, and it looks like it was lodged six out of the 10 pictures. Mm -hmm. um, you know, rather than some score or some feeling that you had or some note you took when you were in the field, now we have kind of a images of record, measurements of record that we can then all talk about. And when we make our decisions about um, our advancement decisions or commercialization decisions, we have those those data in front of us. Sure. So, I, I mean, I've, my, my personal view on this is that most of these, there's lots of things humans aren't good at. Okay. So humans, for example, we're not good at looking at a corn plant and estimating how green is that in terms of a, a full scale from brown to green. Right? We can look at it. We can make some idea. But to actually measure that, our eyes aren't very good at it. 
Our brains are really good at recognizing faces, for example, uh-huh. but not so good at estimating you know, the number of uh, lesions or disease lesions on a plant, right? So there's lots of things that we should just let you know, image analysis and uh, you know, measurement systems do. Because then the, the hard part, the part that we are good at is putting all the pieces back together. So if you have a measurement of how green the plant was or how many lesions it had or um, how tall it was, bringing that together and integrating the information to then make a kind of holistic decision, that's something that, yes, we're building algorithms to also bring that together, but we're still at a point where um, our breeders, our field scientists, our agronomists need to put that picture back together. And so I see it very much as not technology replacing people, uh, but more te- technology helping people, sure. helping the discussion. So, Is there ever any resistance to some of these advancements or the, the use of or reliance upon data? I would say breeders in general are very skeptical. So it's been a it's been a, a actually a really nice partnership working with them over the past six or seven years as we develop these new measurement systems. You know, they, their livelihoods and their you know success in, in generating new hybrids and, and new inbred lines is a hundred percent dependent upon the data they collect. Mm-hmm. And so they want to make sure that if they think that there's any problem with the data that are being collected for them and it's going to lead them to make bad decisions, they want to make sure that they have a hand in helping decide that and helping evaluate it. And so we built up a whole system, act very purposefully, and, and having had worked with breeders really closely, a system where they help us evaluate, and ultimately they make the decisions on whether or not a new trait is used for phenotyping a part of the breeding mm-hmm. process. Um, and so I wouldn't say that there's a resistance to technology in kind of a conceptual sense, but there was definitely, especially early on, a skepticism, a healthy skepticism about, um, you know, whether this measurement is going to be as good as what we did in the past. Okay. Now, part of the, the, the interesting part of the discussion, of course, is, and it's, I think, very normal, we kind of expose lots of times questions about uh, how do you know the way you measured in the past was good? <laughs> many times it was the only way it could be measured. So, sure. Great. And I think the, the the joke I used to make about this is that um, and my boss used to ask me to tell the same joke, <laughs> which I guess is legacy. Um, is you know why are why are cornrows thirty inch thirty inches apart? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't do, do you know why? Do I know? No, I don't know. It's because that's the width of a horse's butt. Oh, I've heard that. That's right. That's the horse could walk up and down the rows of corn, and if you had to haul stuff, you had your horse to haul it. And so lots of times. The, there's all these legacy systems, and maybe that's not true at all, but it does, for me, it, it describes you have ways of doing things in the past that carry on in, into now. You don't necessarily think about it or critically examine it until you're challenged with something new. And so that's kind of what we've been, as part of the corn revolution, we've kind of been working through over the past few years is keep challenging ourselves. Why did we measure it this way? Is that really the right way? Is that the gold standard? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we know um, if you had six people, six different people make the same measurement, would you actually get the same measurement or would you get a huge range? Now, let me ask you, especially in, you talked about breeders being skeptical. How do you prove to them that this technology is accurate? The kind of gunpowder of, of a breeder for m- moving forward 
is the ability to separate the genetic signal from all the background environmental signal, right? Because they want to be able to get as good a separation between each of the hybrids that they're evaluating and get a really true measurement of each of the hybrid potentials so they can just select on that genetic potential. Um, and so they want to, in your testing, you want to pull out that environmental signal or any other noise that's generated through, for example, vari- variability in the field. And so that um, kind of genetic signal versus the noise is, is really what they need from a measurement in, this, in the field. And so then when we set up our experiments to test these new technologies, we make a very explicit uh, attempt to compare that genetic signal to the environmental noise for the new measurement and for the old measurement. We also look at the repeatability, which is what I just talked about. Six people measure the same thing, or you fly the drone six times. Okay, what's the variation? So you, you measure the same score six, six times, six times? <laughs> or you know, does the drone give you the exact same 32.6 value every single time? Or what is that variability? And um, just kind of look at that repeatability as well as what we call heritability, which is that genetic, genetic signal. And those are kind of our major kind of goalposts that we use to determine whether a new measurement system is superior to the old. So kind of sit through, especially this time of year when we're reviewing data from last year, several review meetings where we look through, okay, this new trait, we measured it this way over these experiments. What's the old measurement? What's the new measurement? And, and do we think we're picking up, picking up that right signal? <laughs> okay. Now, what other tools are you using? So I described um, a bit. So we have a lot, a lot of work in understanding uh, and measuring weather data. Right, so a lot of people have, uh, you know, either have weather stations on their own property, or, um, you know, definitely get weather data from from public sources. But for us, it's really important to understand. For example, um, for rainfall, rainfall can be notoriously variable from even part of a field to another part of the field, and from you to your neighbor. Mm-hmm. And so, how how can we measure? How can we get a good measurement of of rainfall to to then improve our prediction models, right? Because rain and, and water have huge impacts on, on uh, crop yields. And so once again, looking at different weather, type, weather stations from expensive to cheap, different uh, systems, for example, for using um, satellite imaging, imaging and information to predict, uh, interpolate weather, to mostly measure weather between the weather stations. Um, we have large activities also in understanding soil variability. Uh, because, of course, soil is a huge driver of, of crop growth. Um, then from imagery from different sources, so from planes, from drones, from satellites, how do you use the different uh, kind of levels of imagery and, and analysis across those imagery types to understand something about how the crop is growing and developing? And then ultimately, we have to bring all those data data types and information back together to understand how the crop is really you know developing mm-hmm. and to be able to make accurate predictions. So we also have a, you know, and this is kind of work that I was also involved in when I just started, a big project in developing crop growth models. So understanding how environment, the soils, weather, and the different uh, genotypic traits all interact to produce yield. And we develop that kind of models that describe that, the crop growth and development through time. Hmm. Interesting. Now, are you involved in tracking soil moisture and, and things like that as well? Any technology to track that and I and understand that better? Yep. And so those are kind of constant 
constant areas of interest and, of, and evaluation. So as you can imagine, we, we were doing our drought breeding efforts. Um, we spent, I spent a huge amounts of time, and we still, we still do, evaluating new soil moisture sensors mm-hmm. and trying to understand not only soil moisture through at depth, so different soil layers to depth, but also through time. And that, oh, once again, is also notoriously variable through the field. And so um, trying to, fi- you know, and, and, and then just trying to figure out the best and cheapest methods to be able to accurately measure soil moisture so that we can better understand and develop uh, drought products. And, and now pretty much any, any crop product because water is so important. Nitrogen sensing is the same type of thing, um, both time in time and space, very difficult to measure. measure. Uh, and always looking for um, you know opportunities to 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 measure that more accurately. Uh, one of the things that we've done ever, you know throughout my career is really try to work as closely as we can with academic partners and universities as well as some um, startups and third party companies to try to look for the best sensors, the best approaches uh, that we can bring together because ultimately. Uh, no, no matter how smart we are, we're, we're, there's going to be a lot of other you know, solutions out there. Mm-hmm. And really what we need to do is bring them all together to derive, kind of develop the best methods, the best uh, solutions for our growers. Very interesting. Well, let's talk about the corn revolution for a second. So what is your take on this? What is it? So for me, I actually see it in, I probably put in the larger, maybe societal changes we've been going through in kind of you know, often referred to as, you know, big data or, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence. If you look, if you look across pretty much any, any industry, they're in the same process that we're going through right now, which is um, these data collection systems are, are kind of exploding. We can, you know, and this example is, um, I think London is particularly well known for having tons and tons of cameras all over the streets of London, every corner. You mix that then with new analytics like facial recognition. And so now you can, you can now take pictures of people all the time, have the streaming data. Then you have analytics to figure out who is where. And then uh, you know, that, that opens up huge possibilities. And as well, I mean, there's also ethical concerns. Mm-hmm. But the, I use it as an example of where I think as a society – this is both a challenge and opportunity. Is we're collecting a lot of data, developing new analytical systems, and that's driving a lot of change. My specialty areas in, this, in phenotyping and measurement systems, and kind of driving change in our in our breeding organization. Uh, but ultimately, then um, I think the important part not only in developing better products, but also then taking those technologies out to um, our reps, agronomists, and growers fields as well. Well, let me ask you about, so I guess uh, bring it down a level. Uh, let's talk about Aquamax for a second. So how is that part of the revolution? As, as you're describing this and you're talking about all the things that go with it, let's look at one variety and, and you tell me how that's part of it. Sure. So I was, um, I was mostly hired for, to develop Aquamax. Uh-huh. I was hired in 2004 um, when the, our drop breeding programs were just getting started. Um, and part of a breeding program that was really focused around using our new whole genome prediction to drive uh, mostly faster development, uh, improved development of drought-resistant varieties. So we knew we were in a race to get these drought-resistant varieties out there uh, for corn. 
the market needed it and our growers needed it and our competition was, you know, chasing us quick. And so uh, we needed new technologies to make, sh- make these breakthroughs really quickly. And so we leveraged and used whole genome prediction, which was just getting started. So we're using the um, kind of ge- uh, measuring the genetic markers associating those with, with our measured phenotypes in the field and then be able to make selections in the computer rather than having to grow things out in the field. And so all of that was kind of getting started at the same time. Our production of double haploids for corn um, were also, was also just ramping up. So we were, with double haploids, we were able to generate a lot more uh, variants, different, different uh, starting genotypes so we can expand the size of our, our germplasm pool that we're testing then with whole genome prediction, we're able to make uh, faster and better decisions without having to grow things out and wait several years to mm-hmm. cycle through that. And then we built up, as part of that, our phenotyping network. So I was involved in helping establish uh, um, a suite of managed stress environments. So we, had a, we have one in, in Woodland, California, and that's where I worked for my first, my first decade. Um, we also built up and uh, kind of our sister station in Chile. So I had the, the pleasure of going down in the middle of January to, to Chile every year, spending some time down there, um, but also built up sites in South Africa, in Spain, in Brazil, in India, as we built out the kind of Aquamax branding strategy and product development strategy. Um, for me, it was uh, a huge a huge driver for me uh, was developing drought-resistant corn, um, with our kind of more frequent droughts and more frequent extreme weather events, um, I, for me, it's really important that we're able to generate, and, and we have crops that are resilient to those changes. Um, water scarce, you know, I, so I grew up in California where water scarcity mm-hmm. and drought was a kind of daily occurrence. And so um, I felt a, and I'm re- that's probably my proudest career accomplishment is that we developed the, you know, we we moved really quickly developed these these varieties and are able to now on you know millions of acres provide that resiliency to drought and and stability of drought and stability of yield through time so aquamax uh, the ability to for it to do what it does is that come from transgenic traits or from native traits so aquamax as as it is is a completely native uh, solution so it came through mostly uh, adopting the corn revolution uh, methods of uh, genomic prediction, mm-hmm. uh, better field testing, uh, analytics that better manage uh, and understand the environmental uh, context of our uh, of our our trials, our field trials. All of those pieces had to come together to. Um, be able to develop the Aquamax products that we that we have. Um, my section, as I said, is, was primarily on the phenotyping side mm-hmm. and better understand, better able to measure the environment, measure the plants, um, but definitely uh, really benefited from partnerships and engagement with other scientists working in the other areas. Um, one thing I always say is that breeding is a team sport. So when I first started uh, with Pioneer, breeding was definitely – uh, it was more of a the breeder with support staff. Now it's it's evolved as part of the revolution to a point where you need specialists in statistics, image analysis, uh, data engineering, computer vision, uh, you know, genomics, uh, 
they all have to come together to make to make breeding as it is. And that's been, a, I think, a huge change for the organization and a huge benefit for breeding ultimately. So have you given your whole team T-shirts that say that? <laughs> breeding is a team sport. I definitely <laughs> go around the world saying it at this. Uh, we have these plant sciences symposium, and that's pretty, pretty much my mantra. Um, but for me, it's, for me it, it, makes, it, it really means something because I come from Los Angeles, right? I, had no, I really didn't even know what breeders did when I started my career. But I came, I think, came right at the beginning of the revolution or the you know, early days at a point where my skill sets, my experience and diverse approaches really added value, right? And, uh, and so I'm a big proponent of diversity of thought, diversity of background in my teams because I really ex- benefited from that and also really benefited from people um, you know, who had farming backgrounds, who had a more traditional breeding backgrounds. Um, they brought a very important uh, perspective and experience to the to the to the team. I brought a very different experience, and the great part in Pioneer was that both of our experiences, although very different, were kind of uh, were we we got to take advantage of our our differences and really build something together. Well, let me ask you another question about Aquamax. So the fact that it's a native trait uh, that led to the development of this variety. Is that is that significant to you, or is it is it is it like a cool thing that it was able to happen that way, or if it was transgenic, would it be the same same significance to you? So we had been doing drought breeding since the 1950s, right? And we developed drought tolerant hybrids throughout, but um, ultimately, it it took. I think it was enabled by the 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 different pieces of the corn revolution to really get to a place where we were developing drought product, drought tolerant products that worked everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that it, for me is really, is really exciting. It means that, and this is true when you have a, in a breeding program, if you have focus, if you have the right focus and the right testing network and the right germplasm and it comes together, you can, you can do amazing things. You can, you know, our, the germplasm in corn and the variety that we have accessible to us through our 90 years of breeding um, is, really, is really amazing where if you drive in the right direction, what change you can get. Another big piece of drought, and you know, I was involved at Woodland also with transgenic you know, drought, drought activities. Um, my, my thought has always been that the drought is very, very complex. Each of our Aquamax varieties conquers drought in different ways and in ways that are not always very easy to explain. Uh, you know, corn is an amazing crop, and, uh, and drought is amazingly complex. And so in some, ways, in some ways, I think the reason we were able to have so much success as we did through breeding is in some ways kind of uh, respecting and honoring that, that complexity. Transgenesis, in some, it works very well for simple traits, things that we can explain very well. It's really difficult for these complex interacting systems where it, it's really you can't turn on one gene and expect something as complex as drought tolerance to to magically appear. Mm-hmm. And part of that is just because of evolution, right? And our also our you know selection. We've had to develop new corn varieties for ninety years. Each year there's drought, mm-hmm. right? So there's not like there's not like a magic switch. All of our corn varieties are already fixed for drought. They're, they're, they've been pushed through years and years of drought 
testing in some ways. And so it, there's not a simple answer, one gene that's going to be able to flip it on and off. Um, it can work in certain environments, but often um, is challenged in others. It works in certain genetic backgrounds, but it can be challenged in others. So um, I, I have a lot of pride that we were we – were, and, and, and in some ways it makes a lot of sense that we were able to do it fast, easy, and effectively – or not easy, but – uh, mostly fact, fast and effectively, cost-effectively as well, through breeding, um, just kind of sh- showcases the, the beauty that corn is. Well, I want to ask you about the pioneer name. So what does that mean to you? I'm still extremely happy that Pioneer kind of still sits as the uh, premier brand in the, in the portfolio. Um, and, you know, I have a lot of, having helped develop some of the Aquamax varieties, um, have a lot of pride and you know close association with the with the pioneer brand um of course, the company is changing we have a new name um, and we're expanding as well so part of the work i'm working on with the kind of digital products and digital services is very different than um i'd say the traditional seed focused pioneer uh, but in some ways sticks to the same roots of kind of the long look philosophy and connecting. Uh, making sure that we're developing uh, value, valuable solutions for growers in an honest and transparent manner, and not, um, you know, not trying to trick anyone into any any specific, you know, thing that might that we don't know. We haven't tried out ourselves, and we don't know that will work. Um, so, uh, for me, tying back to those kind of older values still mm-hmm. really re- really resonates, and I'd say definitely connects with my day to day work, the way I try to do interact with my colleagues and the trying things I'm trying to do on a day-to-day basis. Well, Neil, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today. No, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's all for today's show, but check in next week for the Corn Revolution podcast when I speak with Andrea Arias, who works in data science and informatics. I'll find out about the vast amount of data that Pioneer collects, billions and billions of data points a year and counting how they turn that data into insights for reps and farmers, and the irreplaceable role of human intuition. To subscribe to the Corn Revolution podcast, just go to cornrevolution.com and choose your preferred podcast service. See you next time. Pioneer brand Optimum Aquamax Hybrids is discussed in this episode. Registrations, trademarks, and service marks are trademarks and service marks of DuPont, Dow AgriSciences, or Pioneer, and their affiliated companies or their respective owners. Copyright 2019 PHII.